Good morning, everyone. Mark has asked me to give kind of a, a medical insight into the area of healing. Uh, you can appreciate that as a doctor who looks after patients who are suffering, that uh, the idea of healing provides a certain amount of tension in our world. Uh, as a Christian doctor, I try to approach every, per every person I see in my office uh, hoping that they would see the love of Jesus in me and that I would be able to communicate that to them. My mind seems to go to the biomedical when I have patients in the office. And I spend most of my time, as I process that patient's problem, dealing with biomedical truths, what I hope are biomedical facts and biomedical solutions to problems. And I think that's my responsibility. But as a Christian, there's often this hope that lingers and a realization that's there that it seems that medical science doesn't offer a lot for certain people's problems, especially if these are problems that seem overwhelming. One of the scriptures we're going to look at today uh, talks about the pool of Siloam. And as many of you know, I spend every second Friday morning at Siloam. And the suffering you see in those people seems incomprehensible. So today we're going to be gathering later to pray for healing. And it seems to me that healing is the exception. As I know, many of you have prayed for healing for loved ones. You may have been praying for our brother Hank. And Hank is now... Uh, in fact, truly healed with a new body. I can just imagine him walking upright, his knee no longer dangling into valgus as he strides up Pembina Highway to get a coffee at Tim Hortons. I can see Hank looking strong and straight, and I can imagine him with his wife. So it seems to me that healing is the exception. What the rule is seems to be suffering. We see so much suffering in our world. Look at what's happening in the Ukraine. We see suffering. And so we as Christian people need to own this area that we suffer, the world suffers, and we have to be able to process why and how. How does a good and loving and all-powerful God allow suffering? And this is the, the kind of the problem or the, the spiritual difficulty of theodicy. It seems to me that scripture deals with this very, very concretely. And we're going to read from some scripture today that I think highlights those facts. One thing that was always a mystery to me is why Jesus seems, in many of his healings, to tell people, don't spread the word at all. Keep this to yourself. I'll read you a brief scripture here. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds, this is from Matthew 8, 1, gathered, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came, and he knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So often Jesus says to the healed person, don't tell anybody. So clearly these were things that weren't done as advertising and they weren't done flippantly. They were done sober-mindedly to show God's power to help people 
in, in distinct need. But all the lepers were not healed. So we have to process that. And I think we can process that as we concentrate on the verses that deal with suffering. And this is from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace through God our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you will definitely either have been suffering yourself, gone through something that has been very difficult physically, emotionally, spiritually, or will have walked with someone who has suffered substantially. It seems to me, as I look around the world, suffering is the norm. It's incredibly obvious, and healing is the exception. I want to have faith that the Lord heals. I believe these stories in Scripture that the Lord healed that man with leprosy. He healed the person with blindness. And he's going to, we believe that he healed this person through the very granular exercise of digging down into the mud, grabbing some mud and kind of spitting at it and putting it into the eyes of the blind man. And where did that person go? To the pool of Siloam. We have a Siloam here in very little old Winnipeg. So we have to admit there's a tension here that we all feel. We desperately want to see healing, but we also have to acknowledge, wow, the world is full of suffering. And today we're going to pray that healing wins. And the ultimate truth we're taught, again, all prayers are answered. And sometimes the answer is just no. And sometimes the answer is not yet. And I believe in prayers for healing, the answer is not yet to those who are Christian. That beautiful promise of a body that works. I'm going to be reading our scripture for today. Uh, and the first is from the book of John, chapter 9. And this deals with the pool of Siloam, the healing of Jesus. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And now, the prayer of faith. This is from James 5, beginning at verse 13. If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. 
Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Please join with me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for this group of scriptures that help us understand the places of healing and suffering in our world. We thank you for the teachings of Genesis that introduce to us suffering comes because of Adam and his choosing to go his own way. So it seems to me we have an adequate explanation for why suffering is here and that it will persist. And we look around our world and we think of the lovely people in the Ukraine hunkered down, being attacked, their apartments and cities bombed, guns firing, and we realize we are people in need. We are a world in need. And Lord, all we can do is lay it all down. Lay it all down at your feet. Throw up our hands and say, Lord, help our world. And today we're going to throw up our hands and say, Lord, help each other. For our bodies fail. Our spirits get weak. Our emotions get raw. We feel overwhelmed. And we crave the peace that transcends all understanding. We crave that, Lord. Lord, I pray above all today that that peace would guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus as we bring prayers to you. Thank you for this day. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Neil. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. Neil just read our passage. But I'd like for you, if you can, to have it in front of you so you can follow along during our message. Just about three weeks ago, on a Wednesday evening, during our midweek Bible study, a question arose about the role of prayer about our responsibilities to pray for each other, specifically our role and responsibilities to pray for our own and each other's healing, and even more specifically, physical healing. So we agreed to put off for a week the conclusion of Psalm 118, 
We prayed for the Holy Spirit's clear leading and teaching. And we turned to the book of James, chapter 5, which is also our focal text for this morning. I think all who participated on that Wednesday evening would agree that not only was it an excellent time in God's word, but the Lord, the Holy Spirit, was right there with us. This leads me to a little advertisement about Wednesday nights. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, has been showing up regularly to be with us, and we've been growing in grace and faith and hope and love. I'm not trying to guilt anyone into coming. I'll never encourage anyone to do anything because of guilt or duty or coercion. We here at Bethesda Church try not to do anything because of those or other negative emotions that we can pile upon ourselves and upon each other. At least we try not to. I'm not even saying come to Bible study because we have such a wonderful Bible teacher to lead us. But here's the thing. We do have a wonderful Bible teacher, capital T, who's been showing up regularly to teach us and to lead us. And his name is the Lord, the Holy Spirit, who is the very personal presence of Jesus Christ himself. He is and has been and will be with us and regularly. Please allow me to give you two very brief scriptural recitations or proofs of the point. Jesus, Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And sometimes we've had two or three and other times we've had 12 or 15. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18, put it a bit differently, but no less profoundly. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of Christ, from one degree to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So join us on Wednesday evenings because Jesus is here by his Spirit, quite literally and quite personally, and you don't even have to leave home. You can join us via Zoom. So the point is, the impetus for our special worship gathering this morning landed on us quite unexpectedly and not necessarily by invitation, on a recent Wednesday evening right back there in that upper lounge and over Zoom, of course, and here we are just about three weeks later. We do a good bit of praying for each other on Wednesdays and for others in our prayer meetings, including for healing, physical healing, emotional healing, psychological healing, spiritual, relational, financial, and yes, other types of healing. We do feel the freedom and responsibility to bring each other's needs to the Lord, and this leads us to some very important and frankly difficult and daunting questions. 
Does God heal today in the same or similar way the Bible seems to talk about and show? Perhaps another way of putting it is, does God expect us to heal others like Jesus did? If God does heal today, when, why, where, and how does he do it? Is there some suffering he heals and some suffering he doesn't or won't heal? Does God want us to be healthy, happy, prosperous, and successful? Do those things that often matter greatly to us and that we tend to chase after in this life actually matter to him at all? Do we have any blame or responsibility for our own suffering and sickness? Do we have any blame or responsibility to reach out for our own healing? Do we have any responsibilities for our own healing, our own health, our own happiness? And what is the role of the church in healing? What is our role in teaching on it, in practicing it, in promoting it? That's just a representative sample of the potential questions we could ask and spend a lot of our time, energy, and attention on plumbing the depths of the Holy Scriptures to get some understanding on. And I say some understanding because there is a lot of mystery here too. We have to leave room for that. There's a sense in which this special service and this special message could not be placed or planned any better on our worship or sermon schedule. But I can assure you, we did not plan it. We did not schedule it. In that sense, it's an utterly unexpected surprise. But it's no surprise to God. We can be assured that he planned it long ago, if only we'll pay attention, if only we'll listen, if only we'll respond with humble, open minds and in simple obedience to his word today and on into our future together. Now, we could have continued merrily on our way in our sermon series, just as we had planned, unmoved and uninterrupted. But we believe the Lord Jesus would teach us something we did not expect. And we didn't even ask for it, except in the most general sense, Lord, what does it mean to be biblical Christians and please make us that? In fact, the Lord Jesus may well be asking us to pause and receive an object lesson of sorts by teaching us in very practical terms what it means to be truly biblical Christians. He may well be trying to teach us who we should be by showing what we are to do, how to practice a genuine faith if we are to be truly biblical Christians in our place and our time. Now, as we turn our attention to our text, please look with me once again to our central truth. As I noted earlier, it's printed there in the inside upper left corner of your bulletin. Here it is. I'll just say it once since I since I uh, addressed it earlier, by God's sovereign will, grace, and mercy. God in Christ Jesus chooses to heal in ways that are best for us, that exalt Jesus, and that bring him or himself most glory. 
Before we continue, I'd like for you to, ask, to join me in prayer for just a moment. Lord Jesus, we are here because of you. We are here because your spirit has drawn us to be here. If those two facts are correct, then you have something to say to us. And I pray that for every person who is here, either in person or over the live stream, you will speak very personally, very precisely, very clearly to each one of us. We have asked you, Lord, in the recent days and weeks to show us what it means to be biblical Christians. Who are we, anyway? Or who are we to be? We recognize that this question and the answers are, uh, in large part, still aspirational. But we want to be truly your people in this place and in our time. So would you continue to teach us what it means to be biblical Christians, followers of Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, in fact it was in 2006, Christian author, thinker, and speaker Philip Yancey wrote a wonderful book on prayer. Here it is. Prayer subtitled, a question, does it make any difference? That's really kind of the question he was trying to answer uh, in this rather lengthy 300 and something page book. He opens his excellent chapter on prayer and physical healing. It happens to be chapter 18 in this way. More than half the spontaneous prayers I hear in church pertain to the sick. In the broader picture of prayer, that gives the same imbalance as a pastor preaching from the book of Job every Sunday. At the same time, it also shows how instinctively we turn to prayer when illness strikes. Now, I've entitled my sermon, The Prayers of a Righteous Person and Church. In addition to the text Neil read from James 5, we should keep in mind the book of James is written to the whole church everywhere, how we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ and how we are to practice our faith together as the church of Jesus Christ in our time and place. That's one of the reasons biblical scholars call James a general letter. It's written for and it applies to the whole church. So as we delve into God's word on the effectiveness of our prayers and especially for healing, let's remember the essential context, which is the Christian community of the church. Hence the prayers of a righteous person and church. This word is for us all, wherever the name of Jesus resounds. And we read, in the, and we read this in the first verse of James 1, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So specifically, this letter was originally intended for the early churches formed largely from Jewish or Messianic Christians 
who'd come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, so also their Savior and Lord. And these Jewish Christians had been scattered in the dispersion because of terrible persecution of both Jews and Christians living in and around Jerusalem and also in Palestine more generally. North into what we now know as Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, and on around from east to west along the North Mediterranean Sea. And churches, mostly house churches, at least early on, formed everywhere they went along that escape route north and east. North and west, I should say. And the phrase, the prayer of a righteous person, comes straight from the text in verse 16. Look there with me. Therefore, this is the second half. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. The first half of the verse, rather, sorry. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And before we go any further, let's make sure to note that ultimately the righteousness in view here is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If we are, if I am, if you are, depending on my righteousness of effective prayer for you, you'd better look for another prayer. I have no righteousness of my own. The only righteousness we have available to us comes in what we sometimes call the great exchange on the cross of Christ, where he exchanged our sin and placed it upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness. And so now in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. That's a strange and crazy phrase to use, but that's what the Bible says. So it's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. And so if we are wearing, in a sense, the righteousness of Christ, then at that point, the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it works in us. So not only is the 12 tribes in the dispersion or the Christian community in the church an essential part of the context, but the context is also deep intimate fellowship of the Spirit sufficient for us all, men, women, boys, girls, whole families, to feel safe and to be safe, to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Many, many times I have heard the second half of verse 16 recited by itself, out of context in a prayer meeting or a sermon on the prayer of faith. Turns out that the first half, the, first, the second half rather, of that verse, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, is quite a popular partial verse at church prayer meetings. Very rarely, if ever, honestly, have I heard the first half of the verse cited along with it as it goes, let alone as the essential precipitating context for such effective praying, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
This is the essential biblical context of effective praying. Prayers of any kind, really, but especially our prayers for healing, humble, intimate, and mutual dependence upon and hope in God in Christ Jesus, whereby our sins may be forgiven and we may be healed. So we do our best, the Holy Spirit helping us to be right with God in Christ through humble submission to his word by faith. We confess our sins, depend on Jesus' shed blood and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. We hope, trust, and believe that God is good, right, and true, that he created us, that he proved his great love at the cross for us, and that he cares for us. Whether or not he heals our various maladies this side of heaven, those are all true whatever he does in healing, or not. In the end, sooner or later, whether now or in the next life, God in Christ Jesus will, in effect, relieve all our suffering. He will, in Christ Jesus, resolve all our conflicts. He will, in Christ Jesus, heal all our sicknesses, not to mention our many relationships, many of which can only be mended in Christ Jesus. But this is the eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ as the born-again children of God. We all will be healed in due time. We also see in our text that a significant part of the responsibility in praying for healing is on the disciple who is sick. Now, please note that I said the disciple who is sick. I don't think this means necessarily that God will never heal heal an unbeliever. He, He may well do so. However, the clear context of our text and the instructions within it is that of the church of Jesus Christ comprised of disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, is anyone among you disciples suffering? This is the context, this is the meaning. Or in trouble, as Neil's version put it earlier. If so, let that disciple pray. Is anyone cheerful? If so, let that disciple sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let that disciple call for the elders of the church and let them pray over that disciple, anointing that disciple with oil in the name of the Lord. Do you see that? So what we see here is actually a partnership between the sick person doing his or her part, the elders of the church and the church doing our part, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ having done his part already, and the Holy Spirit applying the work, the finished work of Christ to our account, our bodies, our minds, our spiritual existences, the Spirit doing his work in us. It is the disciple of Jesus in the context of Christian community in the church 
who himself or herself calls for the elders of the church and asks them to pray for his or her healing. This is why we're here this morning. Well, we're here for worship, but this is why we're doing what we're doing this morning in the way that we're doing it. This is why we've built a whole worship gathering around the teaching about and the practice of this truth from God's word. Not that conducting a worship gathering for this purpose is required by the text, it's not. But we've had such a request by a disciple of Jesus associated with Bethesda Church. We elders felt it'd be good, right, and true to invite the whole congregation to join us with the petitioner's consent and agreement, of course. And to both pray with us and to be prayed for by us. And we trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. There is a promise in, in the text, and we don't, need, don't want to miss that. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise that disciple up. And if that disciple has committed sins, that disciple will be forgiven. Again, whether now in this life or later in the next, the promise of God in Christ Jesus to all disciples of Jesus is of healing and wholeness. It's very important, I think, for us to pause here and avoid what so many have done and are doing, whether to themselves or to their people, with an outcome of great distress, rending personal disappointment, and perhaps even a loss of their faith for some. This is not a blanket promise of physical healing in the now for everyone who prays and is prayed for in this manner. I want that to sink in. This is not, in the text, verse 15, a blanket promise of physical healing in the now for everyone who prays and is prayed for in this manner. Now, I know there are many health, wealth, prosperity, and success preachers and churches out there, most of them asking for your money, who will accuse me or accuse us of lacking faith, even false teaching at this point, and it is neither. Instead, we aim to place our faith, hope, and trust in the God we pray to. We do not put faith in our faith. I'm going to say that again. We aim to place our faith, hope, and trust in, trust in the God we pray to, and we do not put our faith in our faith. Your faith, my faith, the church's faith, Neil's faith, anybody's faith. We put our hope, faith, and trust in the God who we believe, in the God who has shown up on our scene in the person of Jesus Christ in the God who continues to show up on our scene every time we gather and is ind individually residing within each of his people, the Holy Spirit. And by that, we hope to avoid giving people false hope, which is the worst outcome of such overrealized expectations on God's promises. And what I mean by overrealized is that they tend to take 
what are promises for eternity and bring them down to apply them to this earthly life and thus generate much false hope in the very people they say they want to heal. We don't want to do that. There's another thing we need to understand. Prayer is not magic. I was in the office, this is a couple years ago, I was in the office and I got a knock on my door. And it was a person I'd never met before. And he said, I'd like to ask you for prayer. I said, sure, what's going on? I promise I'm not making this up. He pulled out of his coat some lottery tickets. And he said, will you pray that I win the lottery? And I said, no, sir, I will not. You won't? I said, no, I won't. He said, well, why not? And I said, because prayer is not magic. You're asking me to treat prayer as if it's magic. It's not magic. In fact, it's not the prayer that actually does the work. It's God himself. And he wasn't very happy. I don't know <laughs> why he happened to knock on my door to get me to pray. Maybe he'd been to other churches and they had refused him also. I'm not sure. But prayer is not magic. This is, and this is why I'm not a big fan of the phrase healing prayer. Now, hold on. Stick, stick with me. Healing prayer, the phrase healing prayer, tends to put the emphasis, whether intentionally or not, and, and almost certainly, almost always not, it tends to put the emphasis on the prayer. Healing prayer. Or on the prayer, the one who is praying the healing prayer. Or on the one prayed for, the one who is receiving the healing prayer rather than on God in Christ Jesus, who brings any healing that ever occurs by his good and sovereign word and will, which will be the best for us, which will exalt Jesus Christ, and which will bring the most glory to God. Prayer is not magic. On the other hand, this is also not an argument against the medical arts and sciences. James and the early church did not have vaccines and monoclonal antibodies, simple antibiotics, or even Benadryl. In their case, it was often God or good luck to you. That's not our situation today. And if we should misunderstand and begin to demand that God heal us rather than take advantage of all of the many possibilities that we have to heal us, to help us, then we're coming very close to tempting God, to saying presumptuously, God, you and you alone will heal me. I won't allow anybody else to benefit me. That's not what we're talking about here either. Then our text gives us a biblical example of the power of effective prayer. The point here in verses 17 and 18 is that God listened to Elijah, not because he was a prophet, which he was, but because he was a righteous human being. Responding to his God in faith, hope, and love, demonstrated in obedience to God's word to him. It was, after all, God who instructed Elijah to pray in this way in order for God to prove to Elijah and others that the God of Israel is the God of creation, still in control, still able. Verses 17 and 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
It removes the, the excuse, well, of course, he was a prophet. Or, of course, he was an apostle. No, James is trying to make clear that the same prayer that was available to him and the power in it is available to us, and that power is in the Holy Spirit. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, by the way, when God told him to pray again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So the whole point here, of course, is that God in Christ Jesus is just as ready to hear our prayers, including our prayers for healing us into whole persons, as he was Elijah's prayers. So we should pray in faith, just as James, by the Holy Spirit, has instructed us to do. Finally, before he finishes, James also reminds us of the really important which is infinitely more important than any physical healing that we could ever pray for or receive. The really important, what Francis Schaeffer used to call the really real, is how we'll enter eternity. Will we enter eternity haphazardly, on our own, at best wandering into it, Or will we enter eternity with confidence, faith, and hope in the promises of God in Christ Jesus? Will we enter into eternity on the goodness of God's character and the truth of his word? So James finishes his little most practical book in the whole Bible, in the spirit, on an equally serious and hopeful note, and so do we this message, the prayers of a righteous person and church. Verse 19 and 20, my brothers and sisters, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him or her back, let him or her know that whoever brings back a sinner from his or her wandering will save his or her soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Reading and hearing those last words of James's book, we ought not to miss that John in his first letter called that love. The love of God and the love of our neighbor that covers a multitude of sins. My sins, your sins, our collective sins. Indeed, God is love. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you needy and tired and weak and wobbly, afflicted and in hope. Let our hope not be in physical healing. Let our hope not be in a successful career. Let our hope not be in a retirement by which we can have fun for the rest of our days. Let our hope not be in a pile of wealth 
that we may or may not be able to share with others. Lord, protect us from such idolatry. Let our hope be in the one true and living God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And let our hope be in his presence, not his provision, though we do need for you to provide for us, Lord, but again, protect us from idolatry. Help us to hope in the Lord Jesus alone. In Jesus' name, amen.